Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of Ookla speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash internet for details. Listeners, and welcome back to yet again another episode of the Beautiful Game Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Budge, joined by my faithful two co-conspirators as ever. And we're yet again on another away day, aren't we, boys? Yeah, we are, Budge, man. We, we, we love it, don't we? We do love it. It's a lovely day for it as well. The sun's shining in the background. And um, our, our travels have taken us up to uh, bright and sunny Middlesex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Harlington training ground and, you know, it's a sunny day and, you know, this is the second time we've had to do this because, you know, we came before and, you know, our, our equipment let us down. <laughs> yeah, to be you fair. know what, 100% dead, you know what I was thinking, do, do we do we speak about that? Do we mention that? Mm. But uh, we got to hold our hands up and say, you know what, second time, second, second time, time lucky. lucky. That yeah. was an ordeal, man. Yeah, that was, that was um, a horrible day. I remember going home, I went straight to bed, less looking at me like, this guy's a joker but I'm happy to finally get this done 100% so this one has been uh, in the making for a very very long time we are in very well esteemed company uh, because our special guest is currently the director of football at QPR um, uh, but he will have uh, been uh, more well known for his time at the top of the game in the Premier League a top marksman in his in, in, in his pomp um, you know he, he, he started well, I guess his, his, his uh, it wasn't his first club but where he sort of started making a name for himself was, was here at QPR in mm. uh, the late 80s mm. early early noughties um, you know he's had stints at, at some of the biggest clubs in, in the Premier League Spurs um, you know Newcastle uh, just to name a few um, he's he's got a prestigious uh, title of uh, of scoring the ten uh, thousandth Premier League goal. Mm, nice one. <laughs> um, and and as things stand, he's currently the I think the tenth top goal uh, scorer for in Premier League history 149 with one hundred and forty nine goals and forty nine assists. So this is a, a very decorated uh, gentleman. A legend. A legend, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so without further ado, we welcome Les Sir Les Ferdinand. Welcome, 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 welcome. So we appreciate it, Les. Like we said, you know, uh, first time wasn't so great. So we appreciate uh, you uh, allowing us to come back and, and, and try again. I did think um, about it. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's great stuff, and we so yeah much. we've we've been sort of eager uh, to get this one over the line. Even on the way here, we were just talking about it in the in the car uh, on the way up, and we were like, this is going to be a great episode. <laughs> um, so let's get things started. Let's kick things off. Um, Okay, so we've, we've got to start where we usually like to start, Les, and that is taking us all the way back to your, the, the origin. So the beginning, uh, you know, your, early me- your earliest memories of, of, the, of the beautiful game, as we like to call it. Um, you know, back, back in school days, were you playing <laughs> around at that time? Who were, who were your key sort of uh, influences around that time? Who did you aspire to be back in the day? Okay, so if we're going right back to, to, to my school times, it was just playing around in the playground with the, with the boys always at the football at yeah. you know, break time. Um, and I, I lived on a council estate, so it was after the, after school, it was back to the best estate. And, you know, yeah. you come out one by one in dribs and drabs and, you know, it's, it's two a side, it's three a side. Yeah, yeah. 
it's four three. Then whoever's winning, when the next person to turn up goes up on on the yeah, losing side, yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. until you're playing nineteen versus nineteen. And then you hear the ice cream van, and then everyone bombs off to the ice cream van, gets an ice cream. And I stuff know you have fast, the fast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's why I was so quick. Yeah, I mean, like, not being so quick because you get to the ice cream van first, or if you get there last, then you ain't getting anything. Yeah, you know, yeah. So yeah, so it was you know just basically playing for my school team and um, and on the estate that I played that I lived at um, played football on just, just for the fun of it I probably mm. at that time there was nobody that was probably inspiring me to say mm. um, I wanted to be a professional footballer because there was there were virtually no black players playing mm, yeah. football at yeah. the time so there was no one for me to aspire to to look at and go yeah I could do that so um, it was mainly just playing because I love playing football you know what area did you grow up in I grew up in Notting Hill, so I grew up in sort of like Labergrove. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. And then li- lived on the Lancaster West Estate, but I was I was born in Labergrove first and foremost, and then uh, spent the first five six years of my life in Labergrove, and then moved down the road to to the Lancaster West Estate. So when was the moment where you thought, hmm, professional football that can be a viable career for me? What was that moment? It's kind of interesting because people, you know, ask me this all the time, and I probably never ever thought I was going to be a professional footballer. You know, okay. even in my non-league days because I moved from playing sort of like in, on the estate playing um, for local teams and stuff like that to moving into playing for um, semi-professional teams mm. and, and Southall was the, f- the first like, team I'd gone to and I always remember getting to getting to Southall and seeing dugouts because you know I, I was used to playing on on Wormwood Scrubs or Warren Farm yeah, and places yeah, like yeah. that where you know you go out and there's loads of just loads of goals you know I mean there's no dugouts and then mm. all of a sudden there's this little miniature professional setup system you know Say professional amateur setup system, but mm. looks like professionals. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. So I thought that was the closest I was going to get to it. And um, to be honest, I thought I was going to play non-league football to the highest level I possibly could. Mm. You know, I sort of finished my schooling and I was just playing football for fun, mm. um, and just thought that's what I was going to do for the rest of my uh, rest of my life. And so, did you have another career in in, in mind then? So you you obviously playing. Um, semi-pro and whatnot yeah. so were you thinking right, I'm going to do this on the side and I'm going to have another another career no I think what, what I was doing at the time is I came out of school I was already working um, when I was at school um, I was doing a Saturday job I was doing okay. a, I was a steam cleaner so um, I used to do that on a Saturday which entails steam cleaning car engines and mm. the, the, the underneath of cars and okay. used to work on a lot of taxis and stuff like that so um, I was doing that as, as just to give me some income for, mm. for school and stuff like that so I'd been there for three, four years and the fella said to me, you know, once you come out of school, you know, there's a job here for you. So I did that and as a young kid, the only thing you think about is making money and perhaps the education part of of my life wasn't as important as going out and making money um, as quickly as I could. So I did that and I I filtered into jobs like uh, I was doing steam cleaning, then I went into a bit of, I was doing a bit of van driving, uh, working in a shop and then painting, painting, decorating. Bit of everything really. Yeah, yeah, all all these jobs I was doing was, was to give me the opportunity to train on a Tuesday evening and a Thursday evening and then right. play on a Saturday. So I couldn't have a job that I wanted me to, to work yeah, on a Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was doing that. And then um, I probably got to an age where I was, I was probably, I was 19, uh, 18, 19, I'm thinking, right, now I've got to get my head around doing something that, because this, this ain't going to be the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, I mean, working the way I'm working, I need to get something behind me. And it was just, a, it was about the time where, um, computers really started to take off um, mm. so I, I enrolled on a, a computer repair course and I thought well this is going to be the avenue I go down mm. and I, I, I enrolled on it I was due to starting around about April um, I ended up signing for um, QPR at the end of March mm. and so that was who was, that, that, who was it that brought you into QPR was it Jim Smith yeah Jim Smith was the manager at the time mm. um, uh, Bobby Ross had was the first um, scout to come and watch me play. Okay. Um, he ke- he went back and recommended to to the club that they keep an eye on me. I was playing at Southall at the time. Mm. Uh, and I'm no, sorry, I was playing at Hayes at the time. I just left Southall. I was playing at Hayes, and uh, Bobby Ross came in. Peter Shreves, Frank Sibley, they all came at different times to watch me. And then eventually uh, Jim Smith. And the day Jim Smith came was the, 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 the day I signed for QBR. So what um, clubs were looking at you at the time? I believe Arsenal were looking at you and a few other clubs? Yeah, I, when I, I always remember doing... When I, when I signed for QBR, um, hmm. uh, there was a... Oh, I'm trying to remember his name now. Michael... Michael something. It was a, a reporter for the BBC. Hmm. And 
when I when I sort of like did an interview, he said, "Why did you choose QPR?" I said, "You know, your name was banded around a load of clubs um, mm. that I didn't know about. Arsenal being one of them, Tottenham being one of them." Um, and I said, "Well, I didn't know about any of them. Mm. All I knew was QPR were the ones yeah. that came in yeah. and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and mm. made the offer." So. Um, Michael Whale was it Michael Whale something like that his name or something forgive me but yeah that was mm. that was the case and you know I was like I said I was playing non-league football not believing I was going to be a professional footballer just playing it believing I was going to play to the best of you know the highest calibre that I could yeah, play yeah. in non-league football and you know like I said uh, those guys came in and spotted me and the next thing I was um, I was, I was sitting in the QPR change room and, and what were those conversations like like do you, do you remember you know them sitting down with you and, and, and having that conversation like them talking to you about you know why you why they why they wanted to sign you up and and what their plans for you uh, were at that time. I always remember uh, before I signed when I was at Southall, I'd always it always been rumoured that clubs were looking at me and mm. stuff. I'd, all, I'd always heard that, but nothing ever came to fruition for it. So I just when I was told QPR were looking, I just didn't really pay it on yeah, mind. Yeah. And I think you know I'd do it now as a, as a, as, a, as in, in my role, I go and watch a player, and if the player knows that you're watching them. They sometimes end up doing things that they don't yeah, really yeah, do because yeah, they're yeah, trying to impress yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And looking back, perhaps that's what I was doing when, when I was told that people were, were, were watching me. I was trying to do too much <laughs> and not playing your normal game. And, yeah. and, and, and so, um, after a few times of me being told that, it just kind of like water off a duck's back, really. And I didn't really worry about it anymore. I just carried on playing football, and mm. um, probably was the best thing I did because that enabled QBR to, to see something in me that they thought they could work on and. And, and get better. So when we see professionals, normally they talk about how they've got a solid unit back home. So how are your parents and family around you in supporting you to pursue your career in football? Um, it was, you know, my, 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 my parents came, didn't come from a footballing background. Um, my dad knew nothing about football. My mum kind of glimpsed football on the TV, but she yeah. had no idea about football. I think for my, my parents, before um, going into sort of like the, the professional game, they just knew where I was. You know, I was okay. I was on a Tuesday, Thursday. I was playing football, so you know, I wasn't running around the streets. I wasn't mm. I wasn't here, there, and everywhere. Mm. They knew where I was. Um, even when even as a kid growing up, when I used to play for the, the estate, would go off and we were playing football competitions. They just knew where I was. They knew I weren't running around, and they were just happy with the fact that I was doing something that I enjoyed, mm-hmm. and um, like I wasn't just lingering around on the street. So um, they were very supportive of that. I mean, the the whole professional thing was. A, a massive shock and surprise to them. Was a I bonus. Did, I, 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 didn't, a bonus. I didn't say anything to them. I didn't say, "Oh, this club's looking at me," mm. or that club's. Like, I just, I just carried on playing football non-league. And, and when it all happened, they was as shocked as, as as I was. You know. So when you signed your first contract as a professional footballer, how, how was that feeling? Um, it re- pretty surreal. Because mm. um, you know you're you're looking at you know these magazines match whatever they are you know shoot and all that and and you're looking at all these professional players in in these uh, in these magazines and all of a sudden there's a little caption of you in amongst mm. all these people and you're thinking <laughs> wow hang on you know two weeks ago I was looking at whoever it may be yeah, you know yeah. and now you're in this magazine and it was a really sort of really, it took me a little while to get, come to terms with with the professional life being a professional footballer because I think I tried very hard to, to remain the same person yeah. to be the same person mm. um, to carry on knocking around with my mates because I didn't want them to believe that I'd changed be, be, mm, just because yeah, of course, yeah. of course. as a professional footballer and unfortunately what I learned as I grew it wasn't that you change it's people check his attitudes to you change yeah. mm. and um, so that was that was a big thing for me I was actually going to ask like what it was like going back to the state mm-hmm. obviously all these guys you're playing with and you're growing up with these guys you're back now and you're, you're a signed professional footballer <laughs> what's it like what's the aura like what's everybody what's it, how's everyone behaving towards you and whatnot when you it's it's really strange because I think when you when you when you're younger and you're you're playing you're seen as you're seen as a good good player amongst your players you're always the captain you're always yeah, the one yeah, that yeah. everyone goes to you're always first pick and all yeah. that and I was kind of like, I suppose I was that yeah. you know so my, my, the the guys that I played with knew knew I was a good player um, or felt that I was a good player but didn't you know we had no one who'd gone into the professional yeah, ranks yeah. so like I said I, I came home I lived on this you know I sign as a, as a pro listen it's not like what everybody thinks the day you sign as a professional what don't mean you're earning 20 grand a week or 10 grand a week yeah, so yeah, you yeah, can just yeah. go and lavishly spend it. living at home with my mum until unfortunately my mum passed away but um, I was living at home until I was 21 with her you know mm-hmm. I signed at 19 so two years I still spent living on the estate you know yeah. Mm-hmm. so um, yeah I mean, like I said, my mates were still my mates. I still saw them yeah, as my mates, yeah. and for a time, they still saw me as their mate. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it just um, because I suppose 
I think when things really change for you is when you get into someone's first team as a professional yeah, footballer. Yeah, yeah. Until then, you've got the title as a professional footballer. But for me, until you're playing in someone's first team, you're mm. not really a professional mm. footballer mm. in terms. But people's just, you know, just carried on life as as normal. So, what's one piece of advice you would give to any youngster breaking through? That you know, what's an advice you'll give them to keep their feet on the ground? Yeah, I mean, you know, my family were, were, were fantastic at doing that, and I was I was able to to, to do that because, like I said, for me. Um, people's attitudes towards you change once they know you're a professional footballer because there's, there's a certain expectation that people expect you to, 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 to see with a, a professional footballer. The mansion, the fast cars, mm. the nice girls and all that. So they, 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 that's a perception that mm. people hold yeah. of professional footballers and I think there's a lot of professional footballers that try to live up to that. Uh, and for a young, a, a young player, my advice would be just love and enjoy what you do. First and foremost, you've got to love the 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 the, the football. You've got to love being a, a footballer. Um, I see a lot of guys now, young guys, and they come and talk to me. Um, and I, I was I was at a club a little while ago, and I sat down in the canteen, and it was it was um, it was a school holidays, so they would, the young players were in. So one of the boys went, "Oh, it's Les Vernon over there." So kind of like how we were in that um, Jason Roberts Foundation like, there's less, there's less. Just pin him down. <laughs> so they come over, they come running over and they was like, oh, can we have an all grow? So the 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 coach that was looking after them said, No, we're not gonna do it that way, we're gonna do it properly. So and he, he said, Get back to your seats because they was having lunch, they all went back to their seats and he said, Look, Liz, can we do um can we do some more grass? Do you mind if I, if I send them over table by table? I said, yeah, no problem, we'll do that. So, he sent the first table over, and like always, like, first table comes over, then a couple of others sneak over. So, it was probably about 10 boys around the table signing a few all grass, and one of them said to me, is that your car outside? I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one said, do you live in a mansion? <laughs> and I went, no, not, so, not quite. Have you got a model girlfriend? <laughs> That's the first three questions. Mm-hmm. The checklist. <laughs> and then someone went, you fly helicopters, don't you? And I went, mm. So they went, I said, which one of you wants to be a professional footballer? And they went, me, me, I'm, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm playing for this team, I'm playing. I said, okay. So well, how comes none of you ask me a question about football? Mm-hmm. All you've asked me about is all the trappings of what football yep. might be able mm-hmm. to bring. And the perception. And mm. so, you know, that's what I'm saying, you know, it's, it's people's perception of what, what football brings to you. And it's not every single yeah. f- player mm. that football brings that to. Yeah. If you was to break it down, it's the, the, the numbers are very small to who, what they bring it to. But those are the players that we see and we admire all the time because mm. they, get, they get the headline. So, so Les, so what, what I want to hear from you is... Um, I, I want you to tell us about your time at QPR very briefly, but I just want to make a statement before that. Like, you know, you were just going on about your story earlier, but that's the influence you've had on us as as young people. Mm -hmm. Like, you're a living legend. And in my personal opinion, I don't think you've had the flowers that you deserve. Mm -hmm. I think you, Andy Cole, living legends in the Premier League, and I don't think you get the same respect as some of the other players. Mm -hmm. How, How do you feel about that? I mean... You know, and Andy, I'm sure Andy would say the same thing. You can only do what you can do, mm. you know, and then the rest of it is up to the media, yeah. the, 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 whoever it may be, to, to, mm. to promote you in a way that they want to promote you. Um, you know, I scored a lot of my goals here at QBR. Um, mm. You know, people talk about, uh, you know, maybe I stayed there a little bit too long mm. because when you look at sort of like the goals uh, that I scored and the, the ratio in which I scored them here at this club, if it was someone else, they would probably get a lot more props than, than I mm-hmm. have for, for doing what I did at QBR. Do you know what I mean? But um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time here. And the time I left is when I felt, yeah, you know, I'm not learning anything more mm-hmm. here. You know, I need to move on and try and mm-hmm. try and make the best the best of a less fair than I could possibly make. And mm-hmm. was to and when I when I moved from the club, it wasn't about finances. It was about me trying to improve myself as a as, as a footballer. And I went to a club that I felt at that time was arguably on on the front foot in doing that and speaking to the manager he was gearing the, the, the team up to play um, mm. according to, to how I played you know what I mean so um, I felt all the, the, the things were stacked in my favour to go to that club and as you mentioned you're the record you know goal scorer for QPR so moving to Newcastle how mm. was that because when you look at stature wise it's probably a bigger club mm. you know the Gallagher end you know mm. vociferous Geordie so how mm. was that experience I think um, obviously 
Andy paved the way in terms of like um, certainly from a colour perspective going mm. into to, to, to Newcastle before then you'd have you'd looked at it and thought there's not many black players that go up <laughs> to mm. Newcastle and play and Andy'd gone and had a successful time but I, I, I never when I left QBR and I went to Newcastle I never at no stage in, the, in that move and the time I got there did I ever doubt myself because I felt I was now an established uh, uh, Premier League player um, and it didn't matter who I was playing in front of at that time. I was, I was, I'd probably have so much confidence in my game that it didn't matter where I went, I felt I was going to score goals. Mm. So none of the pressures of going up and playing in front of the Geordies in front of, <laughs> you know, at the time the the, the stadium only held 36,000 mm. and, and a few hundred and they sold, all sold out to season tickets, mm. you know, uh, Putting the number nine on my back, and there was nothing that I was I, I was I was worried about. I just felt if I go and do what I know I can do, then I was go, it was going to be uh, I was going to be a success. Mm. Yeah, and the records show that. I mean, you were the leading mm. scorer, twenty nine goals, winning PFA Player of the Year. So how did that feel? Um, I would have given up the PFA Player of the Year for for, for, for us the, winning the mm. league because mm. we was that far in front. Um, and to be honest, you know, I, I look back on it, and there was a loss, a loss of form from myself, a loss of form from other players. And we just didn't know how to get over the finishing line. Um, because if you look back, I mean, I think I had 20 goals just before Christmas, scored nine goals. At, you know, the second half of the season, mm. so that tells you yeah, I had yeah, a loss yeah. of form. And then the the, the 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 boys around me as well, who were outstanding in the early part of the season, just didn't find the same same form in the second half of the season, which um, was to our undoing. Yeah, when you speak to some, you know, Geordies, they say the undoing of that title run was the fact that Aspria and mm. David Batty came into the fold. Do you think that upset the team ambience or if you could give us an inside scoop? Yeah, I think it's unfair to, to, to blame Aspria. He was such a talented boy, um, such a talented player that when he came in and you saw what he did as a management, you would go, I can't get him in the team because he's going to help us. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you let managers live and die by the decisions they make, you mm-hmm. know, and at the time he felt it was a decision that was going to help us. And to pin the blame on him, like I said, I'd gone from 20 goals to, to nine in the second half of the season. What, what, what the cause of that was, injuries, whatever's coming back, loss of form, mm-hmm. and the supply wasn't the same in, in, mm-hmm. in, perhaps in the second half of the season as it was in the first. I think um, just to heart back um, to earlier on in your career, just very quickly, I think you had a spell over in Turkey, yeah, and you were the first um, English player to play abroad in Turkey, so how was that? How was that experience? Yeah, that was, um, you know, again, I kind of like, uh, I'd had a, uh, it was my second year at QBR, I, I joined around mm. about this stage of the season um, from non-league football and went into QBR and I actually made my debut quite early you know because I did pretty well in the, the reserve games did well in training I got a chance to, to, to come off the bench a couple of times and then the next year was like a, an in and out year for me and then towards the back end of that year Jim Smith had come to me and he said look I've got a mate uh, in Turkey Gordon Mill who's played over here managed um, over here um, he's now managing a club in Turkey and um, he's looking for a centre forward I think it might be a good thing for you to mm. do and at first I was like yeah 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 and I was thinking Turkey I ain't going to Turkey like I ain't going to Turkey but um, it kind of like materialised and I, mm. I met Gordon like what he had to say and I thought listen what's the worst what's, what's the worst case scenario the worst case scenario is I go there I don't enjoy it I jump on a plane and I come back yeah um even if they held my registration for a year, that is the worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, the best case scenario is I go out there and I have a year away from England, away a year away from all my mates and stuff like that, and um, just be able to concentrate on football 100%, which mm. is what I did and what I was able to do. And, and for me, that was the that for me that was me serving my football apprenticeship. When I came into to football, I'd missed the, the apprenticeship stage that most players go through. Mm. And always, I always look on that as being my, my, my apprenticeship stage and that taught me everything I needed to know about being a professional footballer. So when you, see field, it, so when you see it, um, recently there's been a stop or players have started to go to Europe more. Before, like five, ten years ago, players were reluctant. Now we're seeing the Jaden Sanchos, the Jonathan Panzos going abroad. Mm. So what does that do for you in terms of a personal development point of view and a professional standpoint? I think... For me, it's, it's it's brilliant because 
you know, you've got some of these young boys that are very, very talented. Um, and we've seen Jaden Shanto go across and he's extremely talented and he's playing all the time. He he would have been, had he still been at Man City, he probably would have been hardly made any appearances. Mm-hmm. He's gone and now playing in the Bundesliga and Pete was talking about paying lots of money to bring him back yeah. to the UK. So what he did is he, he looked at his development rather than just sitting there and earning good money and not, not playing football. He mm. wanted to play football. And so he felt the best thing for his football was to take himself out of the environment, take himself somewhere else. And and at the same time, as you know, for, for me, in, in terms of becoming a better professional footballer, it also, I grew up as a person because I was on my own in Turkey, you know, I'm in a new country, got to learn a new language, got to, got to, got to adapt. And mm. what I did is I, I embraced myself in, in, in the Turkish culture. I didn't go there thinking, oh, this ain't like London, this mm. ain't like London, this ain't like London. I just went there and went, I'm in Turkey now, so I'm going to adapt to, mm. to what life is in Turkey. And, yeah. um, and that helped me. Because I was actually going to ask, um, uh, again, talking about your stint over in uh, Besiktas, um, obviously on the pitch it seems as though you you know you, you took like a duck to water you, you had a really really good uh, goal return I think it was 14 goals in 24 appearances mm. but then obviously off off the pitch you've got to adjust did you did you have any friends or family out there with you uh, and how did you manage to make that sort of adjustment no I had I had uh, family uh, and friends come out and visit okay but I was, for, for the majority of the time I was out there on my own um, I was very fortunate that um, we had a we had a goalkeeper who was a Serb. Um, back then it was it was the old Yugoslavia, so he was Yugoslavian in in terms. But now it, it's all changed, mm-hmm. and he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's a Serb. But um, he he was the goalkeeper, and his wife was uh, she was Serbian as well. She was an English teacher, so he could speak d- decent English. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so it was it, I was able to communicate with him. And to be fair, him and his wife really looked after me, made sure I was all right. Yeah, was, yeah, you, know, yeah. you had someone to I had someone to confide in. You know, I was twenty one, twenty two. I was so I had someone to confide in. And he just made sure every, you know he just looked after, me, made sure that the, I went to the right places, I did the course, right things, and, and so on and so forth. So it was a massive it was a massive help to me. And, and the fact that you know I knew that I'd, I'd gone there just to play football, and that was all I was concerned about. So let's just go, um, you know, to the back end of. Your, of your time at Newcastle and I believe the next summer Alan Shearer came in mm-hmm. second season yeah. second season and you know he said I want your number nine shirt didn't quite say it like that <laughs> <laughs> do, 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 do you feel that had an impact in your time and you know no I, I think what happened was um, you know I'd, I'd, I'd had a successful time in the pretty successful time in the, in the number nine shirt. Kevin Keegan decided he wanted to give it to me. I didn't go there demanding the number nine shirt. Mm. He's, that's what he said. Um, and then the start of the second season, just before we went to pre season, uh, Kevin Keegan pulled me and he said, Look, um, we're looking to sign Alan Shearer um, for the start of the new season. He goes, But I'm telling you first because I want you to know there's going to be loads of speculation about the fact I'm signing Alan. You two can't play together, so you're going to believe. And I'm telling you now, you will not believe in this football club. Mm. He said, I'm one of the few in the in the country that believe that you two can play together and mm. be successful. And he said, I'm bringing him here to help rather than to get rid of you. So I said, okay, no problem. So I went, no problems. Thanks for letting me know. He said, um, because it's probably going to happen today and I don't want you being on the plane when you land, you see this and then you go, boom, boom, boom. So I went, okay, no problems. I went to walk away and he went, oh, just one other thing. So what's that? I said, he's, he's asked for the number <laughs> nine shirt. What's the situation with the number nine shirt? So I said, well, look, I'll ask Les. I said, no, I asked him, what did you say? And he said, well, I'd, I'd ask. He said, because, you know, Alan's worn it all his life and all that. I said, I've worn it all my life. Mm. Um, and he went, oh, I didn't think... He said to me, I didn't think numbers meant... Uh, a number meant anything to you. He said, it was like when I was at Liverpool, you know, the number seven really didn't mean nothing to me. They gave it to me. I just wore it. I said, OK, no problem. I said, but listen... And, and all the time, I'm, it's churning over in my head and, and I was thinking about it and I said, look, the mere fact that you've come and asked me means you want him to have it. Mm. And if you're the manager of this football club and you want him to have the shirt, I ain't going to fight you for it. Mm. That's what you got to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't want it to be like that. I said, no, no, no. Because if you didn't want him to have it, you would have said to him, look, Les has done well of in course. the shirt last year. I'm not coming to him mm. and saying, mm. but the mere fact that you've asked, asked yeah. me means yeah. you want him to have it. So you're the manager, you do what you need to do. How is your relationship with Alan as, it, as things stand right now? So my relationship with with Alan now is, is my relationship's always been good. Mm. Um, I've never had a problem with it. Um, the mere fact that he asked for the shirt, I didn't have a problem with that. You know, I I would have probably done the same thing. You know, yeah. wearing number nine. Local I mean, boy as well. Yeah. yeah, when, yeah, I went, yeah. when I went to when I went to Tottenham, um, Darren Anderton was wearing a number nine shirt, um, and 
I went and the the numbers had already been done for the season. But the, the next season, I went and um, I asked him, could I could I have the number nine? And he was he was fine about it. Now maybe shouldn't have taken off him because I ended up having so many injuries and he had loads of injuries in it before so <laughs> um, well, I probably shouldn't have taken off but I did but you know and, yeah. and there was no there, there was no malice between my, my, myself and Alan um, and I remember he came out to we was uh, touring Singapore uh, China and Japan on, on that on that um, on that particular pre-season he came out to Singapore and did the tour with us and you know, I'd never had a problem with him you know, I'd, I'd known him from my England days I'd got on well with him so it wasn't there was never no animosity between us Was there yes. any banter in the, uh, in the dressing room from the lads? Yeah, oh no the, all, the, all the work I mean all the lads when, when they when they heard about it they was like what are you doing what are you giving that number nine shirt for what are you doing blah 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 you should have sold it to him and all that yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah it's crazy yeah, but, but psychologically like you're the main man you mm. score all of the goals the season before so him coming in that number nine shirt did it have an impact it must have surely no because you know I, and I, I say to the boys now you know because uh, Whatever you, wherever you go and whatever you do in life, you're always going to have competition. You're going to mm. have someone wanting to take mm-hmm. your place. You're always going to. I never, for, I'd never for one minute. It never entered my mind that I wasn't going to play at Newcastle mm. um, because Alan Shearer was coming in. Um, and like I said, it, it was the same as when I left there. I was, I was very confident I was going to go there and I was going to do well. And it never entered my mind for one moment. Oh, Alan's coming. That means I might not play now. I just felt, you know, I mean, I was just going to do what I needed to do and I was going to play. Fair enough. Yeah, because at the time, for me, this is, you know, two Hall of Famers in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, it was two world-class strikers. Did you ever think you can play with Allen? Yeah, I mean, I knew I could play with Allen because, you know, I'd, I'd, gone, I'd gone through my career and I'd played with a different variety of strikers. You know, I'd, uh, I'd been here, I'd played with, you know, Mark Falco, I'd played with Colin Clark, I'd played with uh, uh, Kevin Gallen, Bradley Allen, uh, Danny D. I played with so many different strikers. Mm. It never bothered me. I thought I could... my my style of play could have adapted to anything. I wasn't just your straight up number nine who just held the ball up. I could run in behind. I could do I could do a variety of different things. I didn't. There wasn't a striker. You know, I played with Teddy Sheringham. I played with uh, Peter mm. Beasley. There was, wasn't a striker that I didn't think I could mm. have a good combination with. Even you scored forty nine goals with Alan yeah, Shearer, exactly. so that shows. And both mm. of you are out for long term with injuries, exactly. so that actually puts it, that to bed. Exactly. And um, you know, we we and you know, people say sometimes, okay, it wasn't saying it click straight away we had to learn about each other and we did and it wasn't long before we was you know I used to stand on the, on the, on the centre circle before a take, taking kick off and we say to him shall we terrorise these today <laughs> wow <laughs> that was the mentality yeah, yeah. Um, that was the mentality yeah. Yeah. and he just go yeah we just go about our business do you know what I mean I, I recall um, you saying you know leaving Newcastle was the worst decision you, you've made yeah. Why was that? I think um, from a footballing perspective, mm. um, when I look back on my career, you know, I'd gone three seasons here at QBR, scoring 20 goals a season, got to Newcastle, 20 goals a season. Um, and then I went to Spurs and I went into a, a team that was struggling. Um, and the way my departure happened at, 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 at Newcastle um, left a bit of taste in my mouth in terms of like... Um, I, I, I can't like one of the, the secretary that was there at the time I um, always remember him speaking to my agent and they, they were trying to negotiate a deal and at the time when, we, uh, when it was uh, confirmed that I was going to leave there were a few different clubs in at, at the time mm-hmm. and then I always remember my agent saying to, to, to the, the, the secretary at the time you know he doesn't want to leave this club and the secretary went said um, you don't always get what you want in life and I thought two seasons 50 goals 84 games I'm not sure that was the right response he should have gave. And why? Why do you think that was the response? I, just, I, I don't know. It was just. It was just. I think you know when you when you're negotiating a deal and it's it's, it's for quite a bit of money. You know, I don't know what my agent had said to him in, uh, before that. You know, I mean, it was just. Um, mm. But that was the response. And so uh, the ironic thing was, I left. Um, I left Newcastle. Came down to Spurs. I did my medical on a Saturday. Uh, Newcastle were going to play in a thing called the Ombro Tournament. And it was it was being held at Goodison mm, Park. Mm. Alan Shearer broke his ankle and was mm. going to be out for the season. So Newcastle came back to at the time they couldn't speak to me because they'd already accepted the bid. So they went to, they had to go to my agent and say to my agent, "Look, we want to offer Les a new deal to stay at Newcastle." 
But because of, and the reason why I said it was arrested, because I made a decision out of pride rather than what was the best thing for my mm. footballing career. Mm. And um, I always say to people, pride is one of the worst emotions mm. in this world because mm. you do things um, regrettably because of your pride yeah, rather than because it was the right decision for uh, for your career or, mm. or for you as a person. And that's why I say it was the worst decision. You know, I got I got to live a, a boyhood dream. You know, I supported Spurs as a kid growing up mm. to, to actually play for them. Mm. Um, is a, is a dream come true, but from a uh, a footballing point of view, it's probably not. It was probably the most detrimental decision I'd made in terms of my playing career at the time. So, how point. do you you know reflect on your time at Spurs? I know you had a spell there, linking up well with you know Klinsman. You had mm. a great relationship. Yeah, so. I didn't mention Klinsman as well, and all, all the strikers <laughs> that I don't play with. Yeah, so how do you reflect on that time? I mean, for me, you know, you, you go to your boyhood club and, and if you'd scored goals anywhere, that's probably where you wanted to, I wanted to score the goals and it just never panned out, you know. Um, I went to a, a club that was probably unstable at the time and I knew I knew it was um, and it was Alan Sugar that convinced me to, to, you know, after speaking to Alan and his vision and ideas for the club, you know, and I'll, I'll often say, what where you see now, where you see Spurs now is is a vision of where Alan Shearer wanted to see Alan Shearer Alan Sugar, Sugar wanted mm. to see the, uh, Sir Alan Sugar wanted to yeah, see the yeah. football club uh, and he put I thought I felt he put the foundations in place for to move the club on to where it is today so um uh but in terms of my 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 time there wasn't as good as I, I really wanted it to be you know I never scored nearly enough goals um, loads of injuries and you know like a loss of form I said you know and when mm. I say unstable club the reason why I say that is because I had five five managers in the change of board in the first six years that was there yeah. so that tells you kind of where things kind of were with, with yeah. Spurs at the time so we're going to uh, wrap up with your, your playing career mm-hmm. um, now Les and we're going to go into a bit about what you you do currently um, really quickly though I wanted to ask um, a bit about you know you, was, you were speaking about um, coexisting with another top striker mm-hmm. um, and obviously it was uh, Alan Shearer at Newcastle it was Teddy Sheringham at, at Spurs um, and the reason why I wanted to ask this is because I, I, I know um, recently, um, just after the, the January transfer window, you were asked about um, Spurs not signing another striker um, in place of Harry Kane, who is who's obviously injured and, and you know, get, laying the burden all on, on, on Son. Um, what I wanted to ask is, do you think the onus is on the manager to create uh, a style and system of play to, to ensure that two top strikers can coexist? Mm-hmm. Or is the onus on the players between themselves to try and work it out? Because as you mentioned in in that piece, you know, the the, the general consensus is, oh, you know, Spurs can't bring in another top striker because Harry Kane's the the, the main number nine and, you know, no one's going to play second fiddle to him, essentially. Um, So, yeah, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, the the, the comments were made on is if you're bringing in a a top-class centre-forward and the manager's only playing one up front, um, Harry seen as one of the best strikers in in in, in world football at mm. the moment. Um, so if you're bringing someone in who knows he's he's going, he's coming in to play second fiddle, the chances are you're not you're not going to yeah. get the guy you want. Um, it, two two strikers can come together and say, look, we know we can do this, we can play together. But if the manager's system doesn't mm. allow for that then doesn't matter how well mm. you play yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. If he's only playing one up front, yeah, <laughs> he's only yeah, going to play yeah, one yeah, up front. Yeah. So. Um, you, you know, the manager would have to change his style of play, system of play to accommodate two centre forwards. Um, I don't think you, you've got if you've got two if you've got two great centre forwards and the manager thinks I've got to get them both on the pitch, yeah. then he'll adapt then, his yeah. system to do that. If he doesn't, then he's going to go with his system of the, the one up front. And unfortunately, um, that's what we tend to see a lot of in football nowadays. And that may be because there ain't enough what I'd call number nine type strikers mm. out there. Thank you very much for that, Liz. Um, so, obviously, recently we've, you know, been struck um, by the coronavirus. Um, you know, it's been labelled pandemic, um, widespread um, epidemic. So, what's what's your take on this? Has this affected the players? Have you had talks with the EFL? We've had talks with uh, amongst ourselves at the, with our club doctors and, and paramedics here at the, at the football club and just spoken about what precautions we can take um, you know 
we're unaware of who we come into contact with on a daily basis and we've changed the, the, the culture around here. Um, I think if you, the last time you came here, if someone saw you, they would have shake, shaken yeah, your hand. Yeah. Now, obviously, yeah. we're fist pumping and, and stuff <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, you had to come through was, the back as yeah, well. Yeah, through the back door. And, and, and <laughs> what, what we've done is we, 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 we have we've restricted visitors coming to the training ground because um, it's, it's it's such a serious case and no one could, could have foreseen... Um, this happening and happening the way that's happened that uh, it's shutting down you know big events and teams are being played uh, games are being played behind closed doors no one would have ever envisaged this you know taking off in the way that it has yeah so just to go forward into your role as um, director of football at QPR I think we all remember QPR spell in the Premier League <laughs> spending you know a ridiculous amount of money and I think even us in our group chats will be like wow this isn't sustainable you know Samba on 100k a week players coming in with little to no sell-on value and obviously you got appointed in 2015 you're celebrating your five-year anniversary last month so can you just give us an idea of what you came into as a club I think you mentioned it all there I came into a club that was you know had a lot of players on big salaries who were probably well past their sell-by dates (laughs) Um, and you know I could understand the owners doing what they did um, and being asked to do what they did because they felt you know with experience that might keep us in the Premier League that might get us back to Premier League because it had it worked in in one season but then uh, when they got relegated I think that the the appetite and the feel to get back to the the, the Premier League had gone for a lot of the players so um, it was a big mess when, when I came through the door in terms of what trying to clear things up trying to get people that were enthusiastic about playing for QPR and wanting to get the club back to the, to the Premier League and it's taken five years to to kind of like re, when I say replenish the squad you know we had a wage bill of around £78 million when I came through the door we're now operating under under £20 million mm. a year so that just tells you the scale and the yeah. magnitude of, of what we've had to change um, but I think we're making that change and um you know, we've now got a few assets at the football club in, in the past. You know, when I came through, there the probably wasn't, well, there wasn't an asset at the football club. We now have a few assets that um, we could probably go to the market with. Yeah, so what work did you and Mr. Hughes and Mr. Gandhi have to do to strip that wage bill from 75 million to 20 million? We basically, you had to, <laughs> the easiest thing in the world is to say we had to, to get rid of some players. Um, players weren't going to leave the football club because they weren't going to earn the, the, the salaries that they were earning here elsewhere. So some players, you know, saw out their contracts, some players had the contract, we had to buy out their contracts. Uh, and and it wasn't just about the contracts, it was about staff as well. Um, because you got, when things are not going great at a football club, not only do the players become disenchanted and um, disloyal you get some of the staff as well mm. so there was lots of things that we had to change just the running costs and the way that we were doing things at the football club obviously we were a Premier League club coming down and when you're, when you're a Premier League club you, you, you think in a Premier League way and mm. um, we've just had to change the way we think about things and the way that we do things we realise we're a championship club um, I think as well with the, the introduction of uh, financial fair play the FFP rule that's come into football has meant that we've had to, to cut our cloth accordingly and um, you know Ruben Gandhi and Lee Hughes have, have kept me um, on, my, on my toes in terms mm. of costs that we've had to reduce but at the same time trying to still maintain having a, a team that is competitive in the championship or trying to be competitive in the championship I, I've spoken to um, a few QPR um, fans and a lot of them say they feel that the club is run like an old boys club what do you have to say to things like that when you hear like fans saying that or saying that you guys don't care about the club how does that make you feel because I know you're a legend at the club and hearing things like that must not be great yeah I mean uh, old boys club I'm I'm not quite sure in in, in terms of what they mean by that in, Mm. in terms of an old boys club I think if you was to look at where, where the club was and where it is now in terms of pro- progression as I said um, earlier on we now have assets at the football club when I came mm-hmm. through the door we had no assets we mm-hmm. just had players coming to the end of their contracts and walking out the door which is is not a sustainable business model for for any football club in this world yes um, you know I brought, brought a couple of staff members in 
Um, if they're talking about old boys club in terms of like the likes of me bringing like Chris Ramsey through the door, mm. someone that I worked with very well at, Q, at Tottenham and know that he's a, a very good coach and he's responsible for some of the assets that have come through, the, through who come in, uh, into our first team and uh, have become assets. So um, in terms of old boys club, old boys club, I'm not quite sure mm. um, what they're looking at and saying that's what it's run like. So when you look at where you are now under Mark Warburton, you've had mm-hmm. to go through a couple of managers to um, get to this stage. Mm-hmm. How would you assess the job that he's doing with the squad? I think if you look at us, we're, we're probably in the top, the bottom six in terms of budgets in the championship. Um, we're probably punching above our weight at the moment. Um, but I've done it. I think he's done a very good job with the, 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 the players that he's got at his disposal. And um, we're looking to progress. And I think he's doing a good job in terms of the, uh, the way that he's going about doing it. So when you look at QPR as well, you see Fulham and Brentford down the road. So naturally, people are going to compare them to yourselves. So how would you assess their model? Because, you know, they're getting a lot of fame and um, adulation mm, for yeah. the way the system's run, buying obscure players from second division in France, building them, selling them for 20-odd million. Mm. So how would you assess your model to their model? I think if you look at, uh, at the Brentford model, Brentford has probably been 10, 10, maybe a few more years um, on top of that in the making. Um, went down to League One, mm-hmm. got promoted. Through Mark Warburton. Yeah, yeah. And got, and got, <laughs> exactly, got promoted. And they've been able to build on a, on a, on a youth structure and uh, a structure, you know, we, 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 we know they, they, they buy a lot of players heavily on data mm-hmm. um, and they've done that. And yeah, they've, they've had some very good successes. No one sees the, 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 the unsuccessful ones that they've, they've taken on data and not quite play for them. But they've got a very good model that's worked for them and, and now they have assets in the football club and they we've seen over the, the last few years that they've sold some of those assets which able, enables them to replenish the football club that's where we're now hoping to, to, to get to um, we have a we, you know I say a similar model we, we, we don't uh, depend heavily on data we use data as part of the, the scouting process um, but what we do have at the football club now is a few assets and hopefully going forward we'll have more You've been, you know, talking about assets and, you know, one of your major assets was, you know, coveted in, in the January window, mm-hmm. um, Ebere Eze. H- how special of a player is he? I think if you look at uh, his, his, his footballing abilities, um, I, I, I could put him down as one of the best I've seen wow. in terms of uh, what, what, what I've played with and, 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 and been fortunate to play with in my career. When I see some of the things that he does on the football and how comfortable he is on the football, I'd put him up there as one of the, one of the best I've seen. Um, whether he uh, fulfills his potential to be one of the best I've, I've worked with, it, you know, time will tell. But he certainly, in terms of his ability with the ball, certainly is one of the best I've, I've, I've seen. Do you think you can keep hold of him in, in the summer, or do you think that's something? I think that's out know, of your hands. I think that's out of our hands. You know, mm. Um, mm. we may get an offer that we can't refuse. We don't want to see him like because we're trying to build something here. Mm. Um, but at the same time, we know that along the way we're going to lose one or two assets, um, and that losing those assets is going to be able enable us to be able to replenish mm. the squad. Which, like I said, because of the financial fair play and the things, the way things work in in the championship at the moment for us as a football club, that's the only way we can survive and move forward. There was rumours linking him heavily. There was even rumours saying a fee was agreed with Crystal Palace in January. Mm. Was that ever close to happening? No. Uh, uh, Crystal Palace made an inquiry, um, but it was we never got to uh, any fee or um, any negotiations in terms of what it was going to take. Just They made an inquiry about him and that was it. You know, you can see the direction that you're clearly trying to go through. You know, there's a number of young talents. You've got Elias Chair, you've got Asei Samuel, you've got Aramide Ote, who you brought back from his loan spell at Bradford, I think it was. So is this the direction you're going to try and go through? Get these youngsters and fill them with the experienced heads of your Jordan Hugels, your Jeff Camerons, your Mark Pews, and try and supplement it that way? Yeah, I think that's that. We, we've got no choice but to do it that way. Um, like I said, I can't go out and buy someone for £10 million. Mm. That's not, just not feasible at the football club anymore. So what you have to do is we understand that you, you know, we can't fill the team with pure, pure, purely youngsters, so we're going to have to have some experienced heads around them. But you want the good experienced heads around them, people that are going to help to, to guide their careers, are going to help them, not ones that just come in and sort of like earn good cash. Yeah, and just help. Yeah. Um, 
I remember last time when, when I was at the training ground over here, um, we spoke about Michael Edwards. As a director of football, do you look at fellow director of footballs and say, wow, like that's the model I want to follow? I think what you do is you learn. I've just been on a, a, a course for 22 months with the DFA. Um, um, it was a director's course, a level five um, uh, course, uh, a talent ID course at mm. St. George's Park. And we was on it for, I think it was like 22 months in the end. And there was 10 other fellow uh, directors of football and uh, sporting directors, whatever name you want to give to them. And uh, the amazing thing is, I think what the, what the FA were trying to do was trying to, to get to, together a directive of what uh, a director of football, sporting director does. <laughs> um, uh, you know, because I think when, when, the, when the, the press write about it, um, no one's none too clear about what mm. what, what the role it, it can, uh, entails. Mm. Um, and the truth is, we, we there were 10 of us there and the role means different things at different football mm, clubs. Mm. Um, you know, but it's about, you know, I've come through the door. It's about getting the scouting in place. It's about getting the medical right. It's about your, your youth development, who's, who's running that, who's doing. So, you know, and some, some, some directors of football just solely con- uh, concern themselves with first team, um, matters and it's about scouting and, and, and so on and so forth so it meant it means different things at different football clubs and you know Michael Edwards is someone I know Michael Edwards was a, a head analysis guy when I was at Spurs Tottenham. so yeah. I know him very well and um, you know he's moved on and, 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 and continued that role at Liverpool and it's just escalated into to, to what he's doing so, so he's widely you know renowned as, as, as the best um, director of football in the world at the moment did you always see those ingredients in him when you spent time with him at Tottenham? It's amazing because um, I think Cheeky at uh, Man City would have an argument about that. Mm. I, I think there's quite a few directors of football that would have an argument about yeah, that at yeah. the moment. But you know, um, what uh, you know, Michael was very good at, anal- at analysing, um, and he had a, he's, he had an opinion on on players. And you know, fortunately for him, what they're doing at Liverpool, um, and I take my take my hat off to him. Um, he's done an excellent job in, in in terms of recruitment. The team's been successful, so it, it what, what he's doing is right at this moment in time. You know, we've seen other football clubs, and they go, "Well, what's he doing there?" You know, one minute it's it's right, and then when things start going wrong, then you know you get you get things. So um, at the moment, he's doing really well, and I'm, I'm pleased for him. Les, if you could give it a percentage, what percentage would you say of your role is here at the first team training ground, and? Outside, so you know whether it be down at uh, the, the academy grounds or elsewhere. What eighty percent of, of my time is spent here at the training ground right. with, okay. with, with, the, with, with the first team, and um, you know um, the academy is just up the road. Um, I, I don't spend a lot of time at the academy because mm. I have the people in the academy. Because I think one of the things you have to do with this job is you have to be de- uh, comfortable delegating to, to people mm-hmm. and making sure that they're reporting into you, yeah. so you know what's going on. Um, but uh, it's very difficult to do everything and, and be involved in everything. You just got to have the right people in place that you you believe are the right people, and um, you look at what they're doing. And if you can see the progression from what they're doing, then you know you you've got the right people in place. Yeah. So just looking at the season as a whole, mm. you know, in the last few weeks you've come into a bit of form. I think you're unbeaten in maybe five or six games or so. So um, what's the objectives for the season? Because when we came before, it was looking like maybe <laughs> mid-season yeah. or mid-table mediocrity. But now, six points off the playoffs. Next two games, I believe, are against Charlton and Barnsley. So Barnsley at home, Charlton away. So if you can get four or six points from there, it gets really interesting. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're six, you know, just six points off the playoff and the playoffs. And, you know, I've, I've looked all season, we started the season really well. Unfortunately, we lost uh, Barbet. And, and, and our form seemed to, to go out the window with that and we, we, we saw like um, stabilised and you know we've been sort of like the bottom half of the table um, I think if you look at our, our net spend uh, as I said before we're, we're probably the, the sixth for lowest budget in the, in the league uh, we finished in 18th place last season so anything above that is progress for us you know going forward yeah of course we want to finish as high up the table as we can and um, we've got eight, nine games left uh, and as you said, we've got a couple of good, really good games that we can, if we can assert ourselves in the way that we have in in, in, in recent times, um, we could end the season with a really good run, and at the same time, um, put ourselves as high up the table as we possibly can. So before the season started, what was the objective for the season? I think if you look, we 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 changed fourteen players 
through the mm. season. Um, at the start of the season, you know, um, people going out and new people coming in, change, 14 people change. So any football club, you have that, you're looking at it and thinking, well, okay, this might be a bit tough this season. Um, but, you know, credit Mark and his, and he, and his coaches and, and the team that work here. Um, we've done a really, really good job in terms of the type and not just, uh, the games that we've won. It's the, 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 the way that we've won as well. We played some good football, which I think that, the that most of the supporters are pretty pleased with. Yeah, you recently had, you know, Naki Wells. He left, mm. went to Bristol City. He was your hitman. 13 goals in like 26 games. Jordan Hugel comes in on loan from, I think, West Ham. Yeah. Obviously, after he spell at Middlesbrough. How would you assess the job that Jordan Hugel's done replacing Naki? I think it was always going to be hard because Naki was, you know, he'd found a bit of form and look, he'd done what we wanted him to do. When you take someone on loan, you want them to come in and you want them to hit the ground running. You want them to do the the, the job that you you've employed them to do. Naki was employed to score goals. That's what he was doing on a regular basis. Hence, why he attracted the attention of other teams. Mm-hmm. Um, while you're, you know, come the January window, I was going. Do you think you could lose a bit of form? Fair play to him. He's done. He's done exactly. And unfortunately, we weren't in a position where we could compete with what Bristol City had to offer. So um, he ended up leaving. Um, but he'd done a good job for us. I'm really pleased. I think all the supporters would, you know, say the same thing. He did a really good job. Jordan's coming. Um, he's had to. He's had to hold fort. He scored a few goals now. Um, his confidence is. Is, is, is growing and let's hope he can continue that the sort of form he's been showing over the last few weeks till the end of the season mm-hmm. um, Les a, a slight curveball of a question for you whilst you were playing mm-hmm. of course you've got that mentality to always improve and, and do better than the last game the last season so on and so forth now in your new role mm-hmm. as director of football how do you improve at your job how do you get better at what you're doing I think you you, you have to uh I think you have to believe that you can get better mm-hmm. and know that you can get better. And, you know, I take myself off to different sen- seminars, different, um, uh, there's a leaders conference coming up. Um, so you're always trying to pick up on, on little bits and pieces that can help you. Mm. Um, like I said, I went on, I went and did this, uh, talent course, ID course yeah. for 20, cause, cause you're always just trying to improve yourself and mm-hmm. you go along the way and you meet people and you, you pick up ideas here and there and, you know, it's about, you know, but it ain't about me. It's about improving the football club. Mm. That's what we're trying to do and doing the best things that you can to, to, to help improve the football club. 100%. Let's, um, final question from me. Um, what are the, you know, short and, you know, I would say medium term goals for QPR? And I'm actually going to steal a question from Dej on the previous episode is who will be the two players that you induct into the Premier League Hall of Fame, your personal two? Okay, so first and foremost, the, the short term is to, to, to finish the season strong yeah. um, and as high up the table as we, as we possibly can. Um, long term would always be to, to medium and long term would always be to, to have a team that's competitive and can get us back into the Premier League. That's yeah. the, that was the ultimate goal um, for, for a QPR team. And who were the two players that I would induct into the, the Premier, Premier League Hall of Fame? Well, I think Alan Shearer would go in just for the, the sheer amount of goals that he scored. Um, who would be second? Probably Thierry Henry. Mm, that was mm. my number one, yeah. yeah. That would probably be the two. There's a little bit biased there in terms of um, being strikers. They tend to go glory, don't they? There's so many um, fantastic players that have, uh, have played in this this Premier League, especially you know my time of playing and, and, and what I'm seeing now, that I think whoever gets in there will be worthy, worthy. They'll be worthy, sort of like um, candidates to go into that Hall of Fame. Yeah, I've got a final question, and it's probably a sour note. Abuse in football. Mm-hmm. Last week we saw Eric Dyer run to the stands trying to protect his brother. We've seen various sorts of players get abuse on social media. I know you've been a victim of, victim of abuse as well. So how do you think this gets eradicated from the game? Because we keep talking about it, but there's no real things in place to stop it from happening. Uh, you know, most, uh, I mean, the, the, obviously the incident with Eric Dyer um, was was a lot of a loss of head um, from his point of view. You think um, so? So you don't yeah, think you should have done it? I think when you when you're not advocating, listen, I understand why he did it. 
um, because if you're seeing a sibling or any member of your family that you think's in danger, your first port of call is to try and protect them. You know, but we're advocating supporters don't go on the football pitch. Mm. Yeah, don't don't then enter the field of play. And I, I know when a, when a supporter enters the field of play, he's not he's not earmarking one player nine times out of ten. He's just wanting to get on there. Whereas you've seen a family member of yours being abused. I mean, in the past, you'd never be able to get to him. You know, when he was down on the pitch, he was just fortunate that he was able to get to it. So I'm, I'm not advocating it. I'm saying that, you know, it's, it's a loss of head and I can understand him doing it. But as a professional footballer, unfortunately, you're, 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 you're going to, you're going to get abuse. Your family's going to get abuse because if you haven't played well or the team hasn't played well, that's just part and parcel of, of football, unfortunately. So Liz, are you saying that we should like, you know, footballers should just accept it because the on, you know, going tribalism in the game is getting out of hand I mean when when you say football look you know people go on Twitter I don't I don't I don't enter I, I don't enter <laughs> yeah. Twitter, and I just, I just because I think you're, you're, you're allowing people a platform to come and have a go at you and, and to be honest with you if you look to someone's um, Twitter page and the amount of people that was following them to the amount of people that are abusing them very small mm. but you tend to look at the, the negatives rather than the positives mm. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, in the past, someone to, to abuse me as a, as a footballer, someone that have had to write something on an envelope in, 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 on a letter, put it in an envelope, go and get a stamp and go and post it. Now it's, it's easy access. Mm-hmm. What about racial abuse in the stadiums? I mean, that's something that we've... You, you're never going to eradicate it mm-hmm. because this is, this, is, this is not a football problem. This is a societal mm-hmm. problem. But isn't football a major part of society? It's a major part, but what I'm saying is you're not going to eradicate it from society. You know, how do you eradicate it from society? Education. Mm. No, it's not education. So what is it? Because people say it's education. And I I look around, I've said this in the past, I look around at some of the industries that work off of football, like, um, you know, Sky Sports, I see the BBC, I see... Talksport. Mm. See, a load of these organisations who the people that run these organisations are very, very well educated. Yeah, but yeah, you know, uh, mm. Sky, uh, Sky Sports have been going for thirty or nearly thirty years now, and yet to see a black football presenter. I look at the BBC. I've never seen a black football presenter. Mm. So if you know, if if we can't, if we don't see things that we can relate to, mm. you can't be what you can't mm. see. Mm. <laughs> And so, and you know, I, I said this before, and, 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 and Sky Sports uh, tried to belittle what I said because I actually said it on their cameras. And they tried to belittle what I said by the next day showing two Sky Sports news presenters, Mike Wedderburn, maybe. Yeah. Mm. And I said, I'm not talking about. And when I when I said it, I specifically said, you don't see any black football reporters because I'm talking about their, their mainstream shows where Dave the, Jones, the Sunday night, mm. uh, the the Monday the night football, football yeah, that's yeah. Monday night football. Never seen it. Mm. So when you say it's education, we keep we keep saying that we got to educate people, but who's more educated than them? Mm. Mm. I think maybe mm. it, you need more people of color or whatever in the senior positions at these corporations. But then we mm. got we got to help ourselves as well, and I've said this on, on occasions as well because you know unfortunately um, when you see any successful black sportsman, whether it be football, boxing, athletics. Uh, um, in the media, not so much the media, but if you see someone, um, the musician or, you know, artist, you know, and they do an article in the newspapers as, you know, let's talk about your life, you know, if mm. you, blah, had it not been for this sport, had it not yeah. been for this, what would you have done? Yeah. I'd have been mm. a criminal. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We need I'd to have, change I'd, that. I'd have been in prison. Mm. So hang on a second, if people can only relate to you as mm. being in prison, um, other than being a sportsman or a, a, an artist, mm. Mm, what chance have we got mm. for all the young yeah. men and young black men, young women who've gone out and furthered their education because they want to move on? We're doing them a real disservice yeah. by saying what we say. Mm. And that doesn't help the situation. So mm. that's why we perhaps don't see people on Sky Sports. That's why we don't see people on the BBC. That's why we don't see people on... Because that's that's the portrayal that we're putting out there. And Les, like, honestly, you're just a living legend to us. You mm. paved the way to so many, you know, black footballers that you see in today's game and to spend time with you has just been an absolute humbling yeah. experience and, for, for yeah, all of us. I really appreciate it. Obviously, this was second time lucky. <laughs> and to spend time in your presence, you know, I was learning a lot and 
and thank you very much and good luck for the rest of the season. Thank you very yeah, much just for having me on your show. And I'm just humbled to say that I've got you as like a mentor that will message yeah. you. That's always always We really do appreciate it. And honestly, um, some of the things that we, we, we um, uh, have been speaking about, we could really just go on for ages and ages and ages. Um, uh, it just feels like the time ran out so quickly, didn't it? Um, but we really do appreciate it, Les. Uh, again, we um, sort of repeat that, you know, this has been absolutely fantastic. A, a great opportunity to come down, uh, see the ground, sit down with you and, and, and talk about football. It's just been fantastic. And one, I'm sure the listeners will absolutely 100%. appreciate mm-hmm. Um, so listeners thank you very much for listening in up until this point in time Um, as always help us to continue to grow um, the platform and you can do that by sharing the content amongst your friends your family members your work colleagues Um, we are uh, uh, across Twitter it's at podcast underscore TBG so make sure you get following us if you'd like to engage with us based on any of the content that was discussed on this episode, if you've got any questions for Les, if you've got any uh, uh, points uh, of view or perspectives that you want to share with us uh, on some of the topics that we spoke about, please feel free to and make sure you use the hashtag TBG uh, pod. Um, a reminder that we're also across Instagram at pod underscore TBG um, and you can consume our content on YouTube yes youtube um on um soundcloud spotify and apple podcasts and if you are listening in on apple Podcasts, make sure you leave a five-star review again all of your engagement goes a long way to helping us move the platform forward we're gonna uh, uh wrap it up there until the next episode over and out peace Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. 